All right, so I was thinking about this. I was reminded that some things, when God connects the dots or when God speaks, some things are either specifically for sharing or at least are okay to share, would be profitable both for you and your hearer to share. Other things are actually meant to be kept just for you. Trying to share them won't necessarily go as well as you would like. Points won't get across. Offenses might be made. Things just might sound weird, disjointed, or awkward. And that's okay. All that means is that whatever God shared with you was really meant just for you. At that point in time, to help you in your progression of sanctification, holiness, righteousness, whatever. There is something that I would like to share. Something I read this morning. Some dots that God connected and I wasn't entirely sure if it fell into which category. So I'm going to go out on a limb and think that even if it's not necessarily for sharing, it's okay to share. It doesn't feel like it needs to be kept to myself. And so I'm going to run with that. There's something that I would like to share. And another thing that I remembered is my main goal. My main goal in doing any of these recordings is to help elucidate scripture to make it usable in life here on the ground. Now, I know that's every speaker's goal, but in reading many books, sitting under many sermons, enduring many school chapels, I'm not always convinced that that actually occurs And I also had to pump the brakes and realize that I can't necessarily do any better. There are lots of things I've said that have just fallen flat, have been incoherent, a little rambly, over people's heads, oversimplified, and sometimes still just using the stock language and explanations that people have heard all the time or would expect, or that are just so true but yet so surfacey that it doesn't really mean anything, or at least that's how I hear it. So, I ask for a little bit of grace. My goal is to say what I am convinced God, uh, I don't want to say revealed, that sounds, ooh. But the connections that God made, the things he helped me to come to understand. I would like to share those with you and I hope that it is actually useful, understandable, practical not like on the ground here. All right. So what I read was chapter one of Deuteronomy in which Moses recounts basically what led the Israelites in the wilderness or into the wilderness, why they had to go and spend 40 years wandering around the desert. And basically what I came to understand is the purpose of life. Not the meaning of life, that's different. The purpose of life. Why we go through life in this world. Why we have to go through it generally a certain way. Now I'm going to rely a lot on paraphrasing of various stories, expecting that my audience, you, either has at least a familiarity with the stories, a familiarity with scripture, or at least a desire to go back to Deuteronomy 1, or some of the other places I might reference, do a Google search, 
and look it up. Because really, if Scripture is going to be useful to you, to any of us, then we're the ones who actually have to make use of it. So, good luck with that. Alright, so, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is recounting for the Israelites how 40 years ago, they had been exiled, shall we say, to wander around the wilderness until that generation had died off. Well, question is, why? Pause. Tangent. Another thing. A lot of things that I've heard, or something I've heard over and over again from multiple sources with which I don't disagree, is that a lot of events, key events, in the Old Testament, though they happened in real life, they're both literal and figurative. They're both actual and allegorical. They happened to people, and those of us who are blessed to not have to be the people who actually go through them, who actually get to see them from a distance, can understand how what God was doing in a specific instance, a unique circumstance, is itself a type, a shadow, an indication of a broader, bigger, and yet more fundamental aspect of what it is to be human, of how to be human properly, of how to live life. Okay, so the Israelites are taken from one place, 11 days journey, to the border of the promised land, and they're told to go in and take it. They send in some spies to scatter it out, they get spooked, they come back and say, this is too hard for us, those peeps are going to kill us, they're huge, the walls are huge, got these crazy other people over here, don't know what they are. No. Except for one guy, Caleb, different story. Anyway, it's at that point that it says, God, fine. Or God says, fine. No. Scrap that. Y'all are going to wander around the desert for 40 years. Now, that's a paraphrase. Scripture does actually give a little bit more to that. But something about the narrative structure of Scripture, just the time in which it was written, it doesn't really give a whole lot beyond bare facts. It's a relatively dry narrative style. So there's a lot that we somewhat have to supply or see just from what it is that we know it is to be human. And so here's the dots that I connected. The purpose of life is trust. Okay, like you haven't heard that before, but follow me. The people of Israel are brought out of Egypt, something they couldn't do on their own. Trusting in this crazy fiery pillar, this cloud, and this old guy raising sticks and splitting waters. And then they get into the wilderness. They come up against some trouble. Some pretty intimidating trouble. God said, go in and take the land. Nothing about that indicates that the Israelites wouldn't have to work for it. There were people living there. There were fearsome people living there. Yes, we know that if you do things God's way or let his or let him fight for you, there are some instances in scripture in which things do just play out into the Israelites' hands. But not everything is like that. And there's not really any indication that a lot of the subjugation of Canaan was like that. Or at least not that I can see. So the Israelites get spooked, reasonably so, and they say no. 
They even say, God brought us out of Egypt in order to destroy us by the hands of the Malachites and the other Canaanites. God himself did this because he hates us. Hold up. God brought them out of slavery because he hates them. He brought them out of a situation in which they were destitute and dying, being tortured and brutalized in order to do them wrong. Aside from not making any logical sense, that contradicts everything that God has done so far and the benevolence that he's shown them. All right, hard shift, a little bit. See what I said earlier about types. It is commonly understood and asserted that slavery in Egypt, though a real thing, is also more fundamentally typological for slavery to sin. Now, uh, in an instance, let's, let's take a look at that. What it is to be enslaved. You, yes, you're oppressed, you're beaten down, but you also don't have to think for yourself. You have no responsibility. Your work is given to you, your food is given to you, your shelter is given to you. And that's actually something the Israelites say later. Why do you, it would be better if we were back in Egypt. At least there we had bread and fish, something along those lines. So you don't actually live your own life. You are completely at the service and whim of someone else. There is no actual independence of selfhood or of person. What that also means is that there's no opportunity for growth. There's no opportunity for the development of virtue. That puts it in kind of a classical Greek um, philosophical way. But what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Everything. And so what the Greeks would say is developing in virtue, which roughly translated means human excellence, excellence at being human. That's what we as Christians would call the process of sanctification. And so when you're enslaved to someone or to something to sin, which is basically doing things according to how you best understand them, doing what is what seems right to you in your own eyes at any given point in time, there really isn't any de- opportunity for development of human virtue. And all we have to do is really look around at us. The 38-year-olds who are still insecure. The 50-year-olds who haven't seen to grow up. The parents who still behave like petulant children. People who just never really seemed to grow up. Which is a lot of us. Most of us. So God brings us out. He redeems us. He rescues us. Liberates us from that situation. Just as he liberated the Israelites from that situation. And see, the thing is, though, is freedom actually requires something of you. Oh, yeah, there's a good stock American phrase. Who hasn't heard that from some good Republican? Freedom requires something of you. You have to participate in the development of your own virtue. And the Israelites got spooked. And they wished they were back in Egypt, back in slavery. And God says, fine. 
I'm going to have you wander around the desert for 40 years until this evil generation dies off. And those children that you thought were going to be prey, those young ones, and this is what's interesting, those young ones who don't know good from evil. That's reminiscent of Genesis. When Adam and Eve, before they ate the fruit of that particular tree, they didn't know good from evil. Those aren't necessarily the best words to use. They might be the best words to you given the, the limitations of English as a language. But what I think is really meant by good and evil is this idea of that which would bring about good and natural which would bring about calamity. The human being doesn't actually know which is which on its own. Something that I thought was great that pops into my head is, you know, when we're set free, we're, uh, Paul in scripture says, for freedom you have been set free. It is not for autonomy that you have been set free. Swinging back around, this is the thing that I think I realized that I'm confident that God connected through dots. When he says those young ones or those little ones, those children who don't yet know right from wrong or good from evil, they will inherit the land. Well, who are these children who don't know good from evil? They're these children who are completely dependent. They're people who aren't trying to determine for themselves the course of action which will lead to prosperity and the course of action that will lead to calamity. They are completely dependent on the direction of somebody else, somebody older, somebody wiser, somebody more capable, somebody more powerful, somebody that they must submit to and trust that when they say go this way, this will lead to prosperity, that will lead to calamity. I know better. God is that for us. And basically the Israelites got spooked Again, reasonably so. Let's not dog the Israelites here. But they still didn't trust that God would actually bring about what he promised that he would, which was the subduing, the conquest, the taking of the promised land. And when he frees us from sin... A lot of us I actually think about the um, the testimony of Rosaria Dawson Butterfield. If you haven't read, I'm blanking on the title of it, and I gave it to somebody. I'm not going to ask for it back. But her autobiography about her salvation, her coming to faith, and her growth as a young Christian is phenomenal. And she describes her testimony as a traumatic train wreck, something along those lines. Something with which I can relate. But it's this idea that God, okay, he saved her, brought her out, to use Christian terms, of a certain worldview, situation, her slavery to sin, as it were. But the road ahead of her was so daunting. What is it that God has promised us? He's promised us restoration, reconciliation unto himself. But that's not instantaneous. And we all know that. But it's a process. Essentially, the human being has to learn how to be righteous. 
restoration is a process. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so the Israelites are exiled, as it were, into the wilderness. They're like, no, 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 we'll, we'll go and do it. And so they actually make some plans, they organize, they go into the promised land, and they get their butts handed to them. Because the actual action wasn't the point. God said, trust me, go here, and I will help you. I will facilitate, you may get bruised, you may get battered, but I will bring about what I have promised. He sends him into the wilderness, but the situation hasn't actually changed. Because the whole point, whether going into the promised land initially at God's command or going into the wilderness, is learning how to live by the direction of God. Learning how to live by faith in faithfulness. This took me to uh, Hebrews 12, which talks about discipline. Um, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Uh, for in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruit of righteousness being that which is brought about by discipline. This idea of submitting to God's direction and correction, sometimes chastisement. But that's what I mean, going into the promised land originally or going into the wilderness. It's actually the same thing as being required of the Israelites and they don't see it. It's not the specific action of taking the land of Canaan that's the point. It's submitting to the discipline of God so that they may grow in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's what the 40 years in the desert Offers. It's the same thing that the exile in Babylon offers. It's an opportunity, yes, to be disciplined the way that we understand it, which are, involves some chastisement, some unpleasant consequence. But within that consequence, the Israelites are forced, really, to live as if they don't know good from evil. As if they can't determine which path will lead to prosperity and which path will lead to righteousness. They must submit to the guiding direction of God. Very similarly to how Rosaria Butterfield did. And it was scary. It was daunting. It was painful. But through the process of it all, she learned, is still learning, righteousness. She is enduring and thriving within the process of developing virtue. And God will bring about his promise, which is the full restoration of humanity and each of us individually who have placed our faith in him to that point of full restoration. When after the second coming of Christ, we reign with him over a fully restored creation, exactly as humanity was meant to do before eating of that accursed tree and assuming upon ourselves 
the presumption of a knowledge that's too big for us to handle. So anyway, that's what I thought God shared. A connection between Deuteronomy 1 and Hebrews 12. A little bit of other things sprinkled in that I didn't remember as I was talking, but I guess that's okay because it seemed to relatively flow. So I hope that's helpful. The typology of you know slavery in Egypt being slave to sin, that when we actually submit, we're like, okay, God, I understand what sin actually is. I understand how sin plays out in my life, generally. I am going to trust that the work on the cross did a certain thing, and I'm going to trust then moving forward, you will actually be at work within me so that I can live by faith in the Son of God who submitted to your will continuously and therefore lived a righteous human life. I'm going to trust that you're actually going to help me do that as things come across my path, as I go into various circumstances. Because what's the alternative? To be like the Israelites at every turn, calling God awful, accusing him of things, abandoning him for calves made of gold that they know are false idols, but they don't really have anything else anyway. So do they think, and they're desperate for anything to guide them, to go before them. Desperate to not actually have to step up and live their own lives. Hmm. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. If it's not, email me. I actually haven't checked the email for this yet. I probably should. Anyway, deuces. See you next time.